And now, O Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. If through the words of this human being we do not hear your voice, O God, we ask you to speak to each of us then here in the quietness of our hearts. Amen. Today we are in the fourth of a five-week series on the topic of unity, something that we all long for. And as I've been sharing every week at the beginning of the reflection time, uh, this is really building on what we've been talking about for the past few months. We began with talking about peace. What does it mean to experience God's peace? Moving on to our minds and how we bring about that peace in our minds. And from that peace, we see unity brought forth. Unity takes work. Unity does not happen overnight. But unity is so necessary in the body of Christ, and it begins with humility. Unity begins with us being able to, to, be, to humble ourselves, to recognize it is not about me. And from that place of humility, we gain perspective. From that perspective, it's not about me. As we talked about last week, we are able to be in touch with our pain. We are able to understand one another's sufferings and sorrows and difficulties when we see that we are not better than anybody else just because we may think differently or look differently from one another. And unity comes about and is built up in us when we are willing to meet each other in pain, when we are able to be with one another in that place of pain out of compassion and agape love. And from that place of knowing one another, being with each other in our pain, we cannot help but build trust with each other. We cannot help but learn how to trust each other better. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today as we look at this, gospel, at this passage from Matthew's Gospel. And this is a passage that is probably, at least few of the, a few of these verses are probably familiar to many of us. We think of them when we think about the power of prayer, the power of intercessory prayer, where only, it only takes two or three of us gathered around a common purpose praying in Jesus' name to see great things happen. And, but this passage is a, actually part of a much bigger part of Matthew chapter 18, and it's not a formula uh, for conflict management. This passage is not a procedure of how we deal with the wrongdoing of a brother or sister, believer, fellow member of the church. But rather, this passage is an answer to a question. It's part of Jesus' very long answer to this question. At the beginning of chapter 18, somebody asks him, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? And the person asking this was probably expecting Jesus to point to somebody in the crowd and say him or her is the greatest. But instead, Jesus gives an answer that is multifaceted, that goes on for about 20 verses. And in that, and, and part of that answer of who is greatest is the one who does these things that we have heard about today. And I want us to look at what some of these things are that Jesus calls us to do to be able to be called, not because we want to be called the greatest in the kingdom, but because God makes us into the greatest that we can be when we humble ourselves and we do as he says. Let's look again in verse 16 to begin with. If you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I want to start here today because this is part of the old legal system 
that Jesus' followers would be very familiar with. This is a system where of law and order, of crime and punishment, of consequences. Jesus does not start there, though. Jesus doesn't start with what the law says. The law says that if somebody does wrong, you need to interview them, you need witnesses, there's going to be a judgment pronounced. But Jesus doesn't start there. Instead, look where he starts in verse 15. If another member of the church or a member of the community of faith sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. And if the member listens to you, you have regained that one. Jesus starts not from a place of punishment, but a place of relationship. He is saying to us, if you are a believer, and if somebody else you, who is a, your brother or sister in the faith, actually the word there for believer or member, it's, it, it, the, the Greek word is actually more like somebody related by blood to you, somebody who's very close to you. And under the blood of Jesus, we who confess our faith in him, we are kin. We are brother and sister. And Jesus starts with, if someone has done something wrong, you go to the person. You talk with the person. You don't put it on Facebook. You don't put it out on Twitter. You don't advertise it. You don't bring a crowd of gossip around. If there's a problem, you go directly to the person and you try to work it out. But Jesus is realistic. He recognizes that sometimes that is not enough to bring about the restoration that is needed. And if that's the case, then go and find others who are like Minded, Keep it small. Keep it intimate and keep it in that place of trust. Jesus is coming in with this and, and telling us that greatness stems from making every effort to restore a brother or sister into the faith. Greatness comes from not trying to make ourselves better, but trying to help one another to be better, help restore one another to all that God called us to be. In verse 17, he goes on to say, you know what, let's say if the person continues to refuse to listen, then you tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses even that, they become as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now here in 21st century North America, when we hear that about, well, if they still refuse to listen to you, Tell it to the church. It is easy for us to imagine a room filled with people, a sanctuary like the one that, we're, that some of us are in right now, and putting somebody up here and airing all of their dirty laundry and telling everything that they've done wrong and, and, and basically putting them on display. And friends, that is the opposite of what Jesus is talking about. Remember that the community, the church, the ecclesia, that's the Greek word used there, in Jesus' time was an assembly. It was a small assembly, usually. It was mainly a term used in the government to indicate a government's town meeting. But it was always about somebody coming, a group coming together for a common purpose. And what Jesus is saying here, yes, get the larger assembly together and see if you can talk with the one who has done you wrong. Jesus is not talking about embarrassing each other. It's the opposite. He is inviting us to help lovingly and with care build one another up. And sometimes it takes those small gatherings of like-minded, harmonious believers to bring about that restoration. Jesus is saying, make every attempt you can 
in a place of trust to help one another. And friends, that should be the case, not just for us in the body of Christ, within something that comes up in the church that we worship in or the community of faith in which we worship. This is the way we should live our lives if we are Jesus followers, if we are people who want to follow after his example of what it means to be the greatest in God's kingdom, then it begins by seeking to be in harmony with each other. In fact, that word harmony is so important to this passage. Look with me in verse 18, or rather verse 19, excuse me. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done by your father, by my father, for you, by my father in heaven. Those are very important words there. He does this for us, but by by what Jesus has done for us already. That word for agree there is actually symphoneos. And symphoneos is the Greek word from which we get our word for symphony. Symphony, uh, where the different instruments come together and they make music that is in harmony with one another. Unity and harmony are not synonyms necessarily. But when we are in harmony with each other, then we are in unity with each other as well because we're working together. We're agreeing together. And Jesus gives us a very simple answer for how we agree, even in the midst of our differences. And it all comes back to who he is. Everything in our lives should come back to who Jesus is and what he requires of us. And he lays out for us so beautifully here today that he has given us authority defined by grace and love and peace. He gives all of this to us when we come together, even if just two or three come together in his name. He gives authority to the smallest of gatherings as long as they are united by his name, which is love. We can all access his power. We can all experience the unity of the Holy Spirit, but it requires seeking restoration for one another. It requires being in agreement for that restoration. And this is such a beautiful example of what Jesus requires for us, not just in the church, but in our families, in our relationships, in our workplaces. Jesus calls us to be a people who are not driven by consequences and, and, and driven by an old system that punishes. Jesus is far more interested in us being able to restore each other. And restoring each other begins with trusting each other. Trust takes time, just like harmony takes time. A symphony does not learn how to play. The, the, uh, the musicians don't learn to play together just overnight after meeting. For once, they have to learn to trust one another with the different instruments that they play and trust them to hit the right notes. And it's not just about one musician. It's about all of them working together. That's what Jesus requires of us. And he is reminding us as well to not despise the day of small beginnings, not to despise the small gathering, but rather to rejoice in the small gatherings that he puts us in, that he places us in, because we never know what kind of restoration can come out of that. I learned a lesson about the power of the small gathering in my first year of ministry. Right after I finished seminary, was pastoring my first church, one of the first people I met in this church was a lovely lady named Rita who has since moved on uh, to the other side of glory. But Rita, I met very quickly at the church for two reasons. One was that for many, many years, she had prepared the communion elements every single Sunday on the first Sunday of the month. And she very faithfully with a friend of hers would take the time to prepare the bread, to prepare the cup. 
But she also was very involved. Every Thursday afternoon, there was a prayer group at the church, and Rita was always there. And those were really the two things that Rita did. She didn't do very much. She was retired. She lived at home. But those were two things she looked forward to, she was passionate about, and that she had done for many years. Well, for some reason, uh, within my first few months there, I went to visit Rita at home. I don't remember if she was sick or if it was just um, a a regular pastoral visit. But I went in to see her, and when I went in, she had um, out on her table, I can still see it vividly to this day, a styrofoam container with two biscuits in it from the local Piggly Wiggly. There was still a Piggly Wiggly in this town, even. And she had gone to the Piggly Wiggly where she went every day to get her breakfast, and she knew I was coming. And she, had, she said, well, since you were coming, I got two biscuits instead of one. And I thanked her, and we sat there, we blessed the food, and we talked as we ate our biscuits together. And then um, after, uh, after we had visited for a bit and everything, I said, well, Rita, I'd like to pray with you before I go, uh, like any pastor uh, would. And I said, uh, and, and she said, okay, that's great. So she reached out and she wanted to hold hands. So we held hands. And I said a prayer for her, and I said amen, and as soon as I said amen, I opened my eyes and I started to pull away from her. And when I pulled away from her, she grabbed a hold of my hands tightly, and she held them and pulled them towards her. And she still had her eyes closed, and she said, Dear Lord, thank you for my pastor. And I just sat there, and I closed my eyes again, and I listened to one of the most powerful most comforting prayers I can ever remember. I don't remember exactly what Rita said, but I remember how I felt and when, when she said amen. I didn't even want to get up from that table. I wanted to eat the crumbs from the biscuits if that could keep me at that table for longer. Because you see, friends, in that moment where two were gathered in his name, it was not the pastor praying for the parishioner. But it was two people in agreement, praying for each other, praying for their church, praying for their families. It was the spirit of unity, and it was indeed a sacrament of a table. Not because of anything special that Rita or I had done to deserve that moment, but it was simply because there was a woman of God sitting before me who had invested so much time in prayer so much time in preparing the body and the blood of Christ that when she opened her mouth to pray, there was authority, there was peace, there was grace, and there was a whole lot of truth. There were many times I went and asked Rita to pray for me over and over again over those next few years. And as we come to this table today of the Lord, and even though we may not be physically walking to the same table, my prayer for each of us is that we would receive the same power and the same life that the Holy Spirit filled me with that day and filled Rita with, not because of anything special we have done, but because of the spirit of agreement where we trust each other. May we trust the one who feeds us today. May we trust him enough to give our lives to him. May we trust him enough to teach us how to trust each other. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, blessed three in one, now and forever. Amen.